I'm Jessica. And I'm David, and this is Passports and Birth Control, a couple's take on international travel. So we left off when we were in Prague, and as with every part of Central Europe, it's really easy to get around via trains. So we went from Prague to Vienna, and can't miss part of Central Europe. Absolutely beautiful. It's a great capital city, an old capital city. So a little bit of history of what Vienna is and its significance. Vienna is the current capital of Austria, but it is the old capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or even before that, the Holy Roman Empire. It's an old, old capital, and the place where the Habsburg family, the old aristocratic family you you, you think about those inbred royals and the Habsburg chin. <laughs> yeah the Habsburg <laughs> chin it's it, everyone wanted to be a Habsburg when they wanted to have royalties i mean the the king of belgium it's it's a silly history so so belgium gained its independence and they're like well we want a king so let's find a Habsburg so they made some random Habsburg the the first king of belgium and so this is an imperial royal family and they ruled Austria for centuries, one of the longest dynasties in history. And so you can see a lot of that royal heritage in the city. It is a very royal city, and in, in many ways a very decadent city. But it's also a very modern city. All these palaces are still there. All this historical significance is still there. But when the Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up, the royals had to give up the Habsburgs, they had to give up a lot of their holdings to the state. They got to keep a lot of that. But what was their private royal property became state property, and a lot of it's now museums. So you get to see this royal heritage right when you get out of the train station. I mean, you see these big old palaces, you can see large modern buildings too, but it's as a very Germanic, very European, very royal. It, and, and, and any time of year, it's a gorgeous city to look at. We happened to be there in summer where it was blazing hot. So hot. But there's lots to relax in, lots to do. Uh, I haven't had a chance to do this myself, but my friends who'd been there in winter say it is one of the best places to visit in winter. So year-round, it's a fabulous city to visit. Now, one of the things that I love about Austria and Vienna is how beautifully they combine this long, long heritage with their current modern status. I personally love that, think it's worth highlighting. Now, we stayed in a giant group hostel with these bunk beds. We stayed in a group room. It's a little more affordable to do it that way. There are private rooms available, but if you want to save a little money, the group rooms are comfortable. Just make sure you pick one of the functioning air conditioning. We'll yeah, come back to that. As he said, it was blazing hot. And so we were on the fourth or fifth floor of this very large group hostel. One of the biggest, I think the biggest hostel we stayed at Easily. the entire time. And we were in a room with some bunk beds. And so we got these bunk beds and there was a little dinky fan that just wasn't cutting it. It was not big enough to, to cool that big room. There were, what, six bunk beds in that room? Yeah, something like that in a window that, again, was not cutting it. But we thought, okay, well, it's hot now, but by the time the sun sets, it's going to get cool. <laughs> <laughs> it did not. So right out in front of our hostel was this big open-air market. Now, it was an interesting kind of market. It wasn't a big square or plaza or forum it was kind of like a big broad street there were actually cars going down a single lane road on either end of it but in the middle of the road there's this long not very wide uh marketplace and you get you the typical things you get fresh fruits sausages and 
foods and everything. And so it's a really interesting thing to be able to walk around and see all these different market elements. And we, we stopped at one of my favorite things of Vienna, which is these little sausage shops. Oh, the, the Viennese sausages are world famous for a reason. Right. We're not talking about Vienna hot dogs or the, the stuff that you get, you know, the Frankfurters or whatever you no. get in America. We're talking a hut that makes sausages that are to die for. And oh, they give so you, good. They give you this little wooden fork and they chop it up. They don't give you a bun. That That's something to be, a, that was a little bit of a shocker for me. I mean, I expect a bratwurst or sausage or whatever. I get a bun or at least some bread. They give you some bread sometimes, but it's usually bread with the sausage. And you have this little fork and you eat the little bits of sausage and you can eat the bread as you want. And it's a fantastic way to, you know, for a couple of euros, get something that is really satisfying and really good. And and these little sausage huts are everywhere throughout the city. And you should definitely try them. Right. Greasy and smoky and savory and just undescribably delicious. The thing to do in Vienna, and it is my main reason for going there as a history buff, as I said, the Habsburgs ruled most of Central Europe all the way back to the Holy Roman Empire to 1918 at the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this is an ancient royal family in a lot of ways. I don't know if I would say ancient, actually. It's more like medieval, I would say. It goes back to the medieval era. So they have this huge palace, and you get to see all sorts of elements in it. So there's two real big rooms that you want to go through, two real big tours. One is where the crown jewels are kept. Oh, this was phenomenal. It ranks up there in my mind with the crown jewels experience in England at the, at the Tower of London, except there's a lot more to see. Not quite as significant, I think, as the English crown jewels, just because they're just legendary. I would disagree. We're talking about the crown jewels of the Habsburgs here. Yes, the English monarchy is still going, so those crown jewels are still in use. But the history of the Habsburg crown jewels is arguably longer and more diverse than that of the English crown jewels. Very true. Maybe less well known. So <laughs> here's the thing you have to look at because you might not be familiar with this particular crown. But once you learn its significance, it is huge. They have the crown of the Holy Roman Emperor. Now this goes back centuries. It's well older than the English monarchy crown jewels. And it's, it's actually very medieval in appearance. It doesn't have that typical look of a crown. It's got like uncut gems in it, very weird looking symbols and, and paintings on the side. It's, but it's a really unique crown there and it's right there. That's the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, that, that's their crown. They would say that they were ruling over all of Germania and you know, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor really much of an empire, but it is very old. In this Crown Jewels exhibit, you see all sorts of other things from the Habsburgs' necklaces and gowns. They even have a narwhal a tusk that they claimed was from some mythical beast. One of my favorite things, though, is a opal that is the size of an egg. I mean, it looks like you could you wouldn't be able to hold it in one hand. It's enormous. And so they, just the ostentatious wealth that the Habsburgs had is clearly on display here. And it's just room after room after room of gold and gems and everything. But if you want to see how the Habsburgs lived, there's another part of the museum where you get to actually tour their apartments, their palace 
dining halls and everything. And you get to see one of my weirdly favorite exhibits was they had their dining rooms set up as if they were going to have a big banquet. All these golden plates everywhere, all these giant silver tureens that they would feed. And, and they had this uh, little educational background where they would say that, you know, the emperor would, when he finished eating, everyone else would finish their course. And so Franz Joseph, the last emperor of Austria-Hungary, he was a very kind person. And so he would always eat very slowly to make sure that all of his guests would be able to finish whatever course they were they were eating. And the other thing they would talk about is how servants would hang out behind the giant, like 50-yard long table and waiting on every single whim of the guests and the the servants would love it when they would finish early because the wine would change with each course. So you'd have maybe a seven-course dinner, and if there was wine left over in the glass, the servants would drink it because that glass has to get taken away because a new glass would have to replace it. And so the servants would always overfill the glasses so that when they removed the glass, they would get a little sip. And so you get to see this a little bit more of how an emperor lived their life and how their family worked around them. And you get to see the private apartments, the, the sleeping chambers, and the desk of the last emperor, Franz Josef. And you also get to see some of the history of this building. The Congress of Vienna met in this building, and it essentially drew the map of Europe after Napoleon was defeated. So Napoleon invaded a ton of countries, redrew the map of Europe, you know, destroyed parts of Germany, destroyed parts of Italy, destroyed a lot of France and Spain and whatnot. And after he was defeated, all these groups came in and said, hey, we're going to carve up Europe for ourselves. And they met in a week-long drunken debauchery where they essentially reshaped Europe. Into the modern Europe we really know. Yeah, a lot of that map that was drawn then is what we see now as modern-day Europe. And it didn't exist before this. So it is a, it's a significant palace. You get to see all of this. It's a grand experience. Well worth the trip. Spend all day there. You will easily fill the whole day at this palace. And it deserves a full day. Now, changing tacks just a little, staying with the history, but moving to a different aspect, and yet equally, if not more important aspect of it, we have the Museum of Military History. In many ways, you could go to this instead of the Habsburg Palaces, but if you go to two places in Vienna, these are the places you have to go. Absolutely. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire really played a huge role in World War I and that reshaping of Europe as we described. Now it's set in its old military arsenal, fortress, barracks type of building, so it is tied foundationally to the military, which is actually, I find personally, absolutely incredible. Yeah, as you walk in, you see these giant rooms that used to be where the, 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 peop the soldiers slept, and instead you see historical cannons that they just had you know, hundreds of cannons just lying out there. They're like, we don't need these anymore. Let's just put them on display. Right. And also the firearms the soldiers carried, the uniforms they wore, the equipment they carried. It was actually really incredible to see all these artifacts of World War I and World War II. Now, probably the most impressive and, in my opinion, most important display of this museum is really what started World War I. And that is the car in which Franz Ferdinand and his wife 
were shot and murdered. This is Franz Josef's, the emperor's, this is his son. So this is the guy who is going to become the next emperor. Right. And not only is there the car in which the heir and his wife died, the blood-stained clothing they wore that day still stained and recognizably stained with their blood from where they were murdered. And it's this heart-rending display, and yet it's the historical significance of it gives it such an overbearing weight. Yeah, you can see the bullet hole in the car, and you're like, that bullet hole killed millions of people in World War I. Right. If there was a place we'd been to in Europe at this point that was haunted, it would have been this place because so many young men and young women died just from this very innocuous-looking hole in a car. Yeah, and the, the blood-stained uh, uniforms and all that other stuff. You get to see the many exhibits on World War One. There's less on World War Two, but it's there because Austria participated in World War Two. but they're not exactly proud of it. They weren't the big player they were in World War One. But there's this awesome little, awesome is probably the wrong word, horrifying might be the better one, a voting card about the invasion of Hitler. Marked yes, I believe. Yeah, essentially, Hitler brought his German troops into Austria and said, hey, you guys speak German, let's be all Germany instead of having Austria and Germany. And they had an, quote-unquote, election. (laughs) We're not sure how free this election was. Yeah, they had a tank parked in the square, and they said, hey, do you want us to leave or to stay? And the yes column was very big, and the no column was very small. And it wasn't an anonymous vote, so they knew if you voted no. So it wasn't exactly a free and fair election. And so you had this card with this giant yes, this tiny no, and in some random persons from history's handwriting, the yes was circled. And it's this heartbreaking thing because you have the explanation of their coercion and the hindsight of what happened. And it's a little heartbreaking to see. Yeah. So the museum is laid out really interestingly. In the ground floors, there's World War One and World War Two on either end of the building. On the upper floors, the second story, is the medieval exhibits, the pre-industrial exhibits. Because as we said, the Holy Roman Empire, Austria, Austria-Hungary, goes back centuries. And one of the most significant displays is artifacts from the Second Siege of Vienna. Now, I don't want to go too much into the history of it, but essentially you have the Ottoman Empire, huge, terrifying, threatening uh, empire that was going to take over all of Europe at one point. They got repulsed once, they tried again with essentially an unstoppable army, and they went to Vienna and they laid siege to it, and it was repulsed, and this was a huge, huge, huge triumph. And we'll get to this in a second, but this is actually where the invention of the croissant comes from. The successful Viennese bakers, when they repulsed the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, they created a pastry in the shape of a Ottoman crescent to celebrate that they defeated the Turks. And so this is why the Viennese, essentially in celebration of their victory, invented the croissant or the crescent. And so on display are these artifacts of Turkish soldiers, swords and spears and captured wartime goods. And you get to see the significance of this happening because if Vienna had failed in this siege, it might have been taken over by the Turks, which would have radically changed history. It would have radically changed, you know, because there wasn't a whole lot to stop the Ottomans 
from taking over the rest of Central Europe after that point. There wasn't a lot of coherent or strong states to repulse them. And so this was a huge turning point in European history. And the Viennese are very proud of it. They're displaying all these artifacts. And so if you're interested in medieval history or medieval warfare, you get to see some really interesting late medieval weaponry. Giant 10-foot pikes, Turkish cannons that were captured, swords and, and shields and spears and flags from the actual battle itself. And so this museum, while only looking at a handful of time periods, really has some historically significant artifacts. And if you're at all interested in history, or even if you're not, just go see the car, uh, the, the Franz Ferdinand car. I mean, there is just a weight to this museum in terms of the artifacts that far exceeds what Austria's current involvement is. Because after World War II, Austria was occupied by the Soviets. And in order to repulse the Soviets, they essentially made a deal. They said, we'll be neutral. Leave us alone. And we will not be a part of NATO. We will be neutral. And they've been that way ever since, ever since the end of World War II. They've not really done a lot of Cold War stuff. The Soviet Union left. They didn't have the occupation like the people in Prague had. But they didn't have the sort of resurrection of their military like Germany had. So they're still sort of stuck in this neutral status. And so there's not a lot of contemporary military history, but there's a lot of that heritage there. So it's a really interesting thing that makes you think, oh yeah, they, they had a lot of that history. So going back to the medieval history elements, the big building in central Vienna is St. Stephen's Cathedral. It is an enormously tall cathedral. It's not a huge cathedral. I mean, it's, it's very big, but it's got an incredibly tall, thin spire. So it's very easy to pick out. It also has a very unique feature. It has the emblem of the Habsburg, that sort of black screaming eagle, very very picturesque, very medieval-looking emblem of the Habsburg of the Habsburg royal family. It's emblazoned in the tiles of the church, so it's it's very picturesque, very distinctive, and it feels very gothic, very medieval on the outside and the inside. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of the Cologne Cathedral, except that Vienna was spared a lot of the bombing that Cologne had. And so it's not blackened. It's it's like a shiny, clean version of the Cologne Cathedral. No it, less beautiful. No less beautiful. In, in fact, arguably different. I, I, I kind of like the black stone. A very different beauty. Yeah, a different beauty. I like the black stone of the Cologne Cathedral. This one is a nice, clean stone. Inside, it's just as gothic and, and, and uh, dark-looking. It what's, definitely inspires the reverence that you expect from cathedrals. Yeah. And you can take a tour of its lower areas because this particular church had a catacombs that you can go and tour. And so in the catacombs, which are underneath the church, you see these walls made out of human remains, skeletons. Ossuaries. Yes. Essentially what happened was is you were buried in, in a graveyard or near the church. And after a, a few centuries, they'd run out of space. So they would, what would do is they would unearth these bodies and they would essentially repurpose them to build walls out of because, you know, everyone who knew you <laughs> is gone now anyways, so let's just reuse your grave and use your skeleton to build this mausoleum, essentially, full of other skeletons. A little bit worrying, but I guess, you know, 
I don't, I don't suppose if I'd been dead for 200 years, I'd care all that much <laughs> if my femur was used to create a wall <laughs> later in life. But also really haunting in this uh, catacombs is a room that they just piled up dead people from a plague. So there's, it's a plague pit. And it's one of the few that are out there that you can see. And it's like this is just a stack of just unsorted skeleton remains. And it's just a pile of bones. And so it's a really haunting experience to walk through these catacombs. Incredibly tragic. I mean, this pile of bones represents hundreds of dead. Mm-hmm. It's really tragic, the, you know, how their lives ended. But it's also a great testament to the history in which they lived, the time era in which they lived and died. Yeah. Now, on a slightly less macabre note, we also went to the Museum of Art History, or the Museum of Fine Arts. This was an incredibly beautiful building. It was, it looks like a palace. It was not. It was custom built as a museum for the people, but built almost for the outside to honor the inside. Yeah, it's a very picturesque building. A lot of times you see palaces that are converted into art museums. This was a purpose-built museum to look like those other palaces, but it was designed to say, the Habsburgs have all this art, let's put it on display in this building. And so they built this incredibly beautiful place to house these pieces of, of art. And David and I are not big art people. We would much rather spend our time in a history museum than an art museum. But the pieces here were absolutely stunning. Not as good as a Louvre, perhaps. What is? <laughs> <laughs> Very different, though. I think that the Louvre's art is a little bit more historical, a little bit more medieval. Well, this is plenty medieval and religious, it too. It is centered very much on what the Habsburg had, the yeah. Habsburg collection. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit more modern, too. They've got some not modern, modern art, but later period pieces, you know, 1800s, 1700s, that sort of stuff. Clearly, we are not art people. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I could be completely wrong about that. I just liked the one painting they had of the Tower of Babel. Very famous painting. Right. Very picturesque. It's, it's displays very nice. And, and it was also an air-conditioned building, so that was nice. <laughs> well, because it was in Vienna, so nice. Another art museum, if you want. Uh, they're, they're sort of very similar, but this one is actually a palace that was a palace, was converted into an art museum afterwards, is the Belvedere Museum, which is really interesting because it's got a very picturesque park in between the two buildings in the museum. And so you get to tour the museum, see all the paintings, and you get to walk around the gardens and feel like an aristocrat. And so one of the more famous paintings they have is the Napoleon crossing the Alps. This is a picturesque painting of Napoleon on a, on a rearing horse with this giant flowing cape behind him. And you know the painting. Yeah, and, and I happened upon it in a staircase. I'm like, oh, they kind of just shoved this in a staircase. It's not actually on a very grandiose display. Right, considering how many textbooks you've seen this painting in, you would think it would be in a place of honor, not yeah. a stairway. It's just in a staircase. You're like, oh, that's there. Interesting. I mean, if you even look on the Wikipedia page of this museum, it's not on the list of paintings that they have in that building. Uh, Again, as not an art person, more of a history person, I found the painting of Napoleon a lot more significant, but they do have significant pieces of work, the embraced lovers, more of the contemporary museum uh, art pieces. So if you are an art person, it is still worth going to. But if you just like beauty, it's a worthwhile building full of beautiful paintings and a beautiful garden you can wander around. As we addressed, we stayed in a group hostel, which was actually a whole lot of fun. See, it, like we said a couple times, it was just 
blazing hot in Vienna. Too hot to sleep because, again, the air conditioner, no. It, there wasn't any. There was not. Do not count on air conditioning in Central Europe. There's a teensy little window that let in a speck of breeze. And there was a little fan that made the air move a little bit. It just made the hot air move around. <laughs> but the bedrooms were so blazing hot you couldn't sleep. So we spent most of our time in the common area. We cooked some pasta, we hung out, we met some amazing fellow travelers. Right, and so what you find at these big group hostels is the eating area tends to be the place where people gather. Now this was hot as well as the rest of the building, but when you go into the kitchen, everyone's boiling water for pasta or cooking something on the stove. It was blazing It was hot. a sauna. You could cook something just in the ambient temperature in the kitchen. But there were nice windows that allowed you to get a cross breeze, which right. helped. So we would have some person, Jessica would man the table uh, back in, in the common area where you would eat, and I would brave the the sauna of the kitchen and cook our pasta so we this is what i typically recommend uh if you want to save a little money and not eat out as much get some meat stuffed pasta or cheese stuffed pasta and a little salad it's and maybe some sauce it's a very cheap bottle of wine bottle of wine very cheap affordable way to get some calories in you and it takes very little effort and it's quite satisfying. And it gives you a chance to meet fellow travelers. We met some of the most incredible people in the kitchens of our hostels. Right. And and all you have to do is just share a little wine. I mean, the the room where you eat was very crowded. And so we sat down with a bottle of wine and our pasta and our and our and our salad and this couple were wandering around looking for a place to sit and so we invited them to join us at our table and we shared some wine with them and in turn they bought a new bottle of wine and then it ended up being about nine o'clock at night and it the temperature was, was not falling. the temperature was not falling and so we both kind of decided he was like okay well we're just gonna stay up late drinking wine until it gets cold enough or we have enough wine <laughs> where we're gonna be able to sleep and so we ended up staying staying up till maybe well after midnight having a handful of bottles of wine. Which, split among four people, mind you. Which allowed us to finally get to sleep. Now, the thing is, when we woke up, I saw a very suspicious character on the wall. It wasn't very big, about the size of a pinky nail. But I'm thinking, that bug has a very dis- disconcerting shape. So I do a Google image search. It's a bed bug. Yeah, that's... The bane of group hostels. Oh my gosh, you just do not want to find these at all. We find... had bed bug bites in the joints of our arms, armpits, knees, down our sides, across our backs. We were covered in these bites. All of our arms. I mean, it was just miserable the next day. So it's blazing hot. We're covered in bed You're bugs. You're covered bites. in bed bugs. It was so miserable. I don't really honestly blame this hostel. I mean, some traveler brought it in. I'm not sure what, what, where it came from or what they do. The solution to this is really just to make sure that the sheets are cleaned and, you know, self-preservation, check the sheets. We discovered how to do this after the fact. Yes. Check the sheets, look for any specks of, of dust on there. Right. It, Pull back the, the fitted sheet all the way down to the mattress. Look for it look like black or dark brown grains of sand in the creases of the mattress seam. That's bed bug droppings. If you see that, you'll want to report it to the hostel owners, keepers, whatever. Right. And they'll, oftentimes, all you have to do is cha- change the bedding uh, and, and, and that solves the problem. So major hotels have this problem. Right. Now, luckily, 
it's pretty easy to deal with bed bugs if you do encounter them in a hostel. You have to but act quickly though, because they lay do. eggs. If, if you act quickly. quickly on it, you can you can prevent it from being spread. Now we just did a quick Google search on this, and bed bugs are surprisingly easy to deal with. Water at 60 degrees Celsius, or about half of boiling, because boiling is 100 degrees Celsius, is sufficient to kill all life stages from egg to adult of bed bugs. So while we were in Kiev, our washing machine had a setting you could choose your temperature for most of our belongings, our clothes, what have you. I set it to 90 degrees Celsius, <laughs> just shy of boiling. And we washed every stitch of fabric, including our backpacks, which we washed those at 60 because we were afraid of the polyester melting. Yeah, there's some glue on there. <laughs> right. So just wash every stitch of clothing and fabric, not just clothing, fabric in the hottest temperature it can stand. And we even tossed our shoes in the dryer and let those get nice and not melting hot, but hot enough to kill the, the bed bugs, eggs or larvae or whatever might have gotten in there. So, right, because the way you spread bed bugs is they, they latch on to your clothing, they latch on to you, and you take them from one hostel to the next. Don't do that. The second you find them, find a way to wash every item in your possession. Thankfully, we only had our backpacks. We didn't have a lot of, a, a lot to, to, to deal with, but we essentially nuked our clothes, nuked our, our belongings, and we were fine. But our skin was still not very comfortable. <laughs> we'll address that in our next episode. Yes. So one last thing we did while we were walking around looking for some anti-itch cream, which we did find. It was very difficult to communicate because we had some person who didn't speak English. They only spoke German. And so I showed them my welts and I started scratching and they went, oh, okay, I know what you need. <laughs> Two thumbs up. They got, <laughs> they got it. us some anti-itch cream and that helped. But while we were out there shopping near St. Stephen's Cathedral, we found this junk shop. And I recommend doing this if you're interested in souvenirs. Don't go to an actual souvenir shop. Don't even go to the open-air marketplaces because sometimes those they'll have fake stuff. Go to the junk shop, the pawn shop, the place where someone comes in, they bring their item, they get some cash, they leave, and then you can buy that item. This was a military junk shop that had medals, had pins, had uniforms. Essentially, it was like a museum, but everything was for sale. And it was amazing seeing this. And, and and Jessica knows how much I like historical artifacts. Oh, yes. And so I was able to get a World War One Veterans Medal. Now, why did I buy this? Well, I had a handful of Veterans Medals from a variety of different wars, World War II, etc. But relatively recently from this trip, my grandfather had passed away. He served on a U.S. Navy destroyer during World War II. And he gave me, because I was a big history buff and I asked him about his experiences, he gave me his Veterans Medal. He didn't do, you know, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, that type of stuff, but anyone who served in World War II got a medal issued by the state, or at least this is what his was. It had the state of Missouri emblem on it. And it essentially says you are a veteran of World War II, here's your medal. And it really touched me, this simple medal. It's just, you served, you were a veteran. And so I like the idea of displaying it next to the veteran medal, not like medal of honor or whatever, but the veteran medal, the simple, basic frontline soldier of various wars. So I've got a Soviet Union one. I've got a German one. I've got a Japanese one. I don't have a British one or a French one. I'm still working on these varieties of nations. They're more likely to hold on to theirs. Yeah, because they're proud of their service. Right. <laughs> you can easily find ones in Austria-Hungary because they lost the war. And so veterans aren't, I guess, terribly proud of that. Or or maybe they 
have more likely that there are people that are, you know, willing to sell them. Yeah. And so I was able to buy this veterans medal from World War One and put it on display next to my grandfather's veterans medal from World War Two. And I, I, I find that very fun to be able to tap into that history. Now, I want to point out the proprietor of this establishment. He was a cheeky old veteran himself. And he had so many stories he wanted to tell David, but unfortunately his English was very broken. <laughs> and so we couldn't communicate with him as well as we could have. He had both. this real thin cigars, the cigarillo type thing that he was smoking the whole time in his shop. And it was almost like he was such a heavy smoker and, and gruff storyteller that it was almost like most of his customers are a little bit turned off by him. But I was just like, oh, this guy is a great storyteller. I want to have him smoke, blow smoke in my face and tell me stories all day. <laughs> he was such an amazing person. I kind of wish he was my grandpa. <laughs> So, on to our favorite things. Right. What was your favorite drink while we were in Vienna? Hands down, the Viennese lager. Such a good, refreshing, crisp drink on such a blazing, sweltering, humid, hot day. Here's an interesting thing I'm going to say. I'm going to take that and put a caveat to it. Yes, the lager, but make mine a Radler when it's during that hot. So, mm -hmm. so the Austrians invented what's called the Radler. It's essentially beer and lemonade. It's called a Rattler because it was invented when a bunch of bikers went to this bar. I mean, bicyclists, bikers. They went to this bar and the proprietor of the establishment was very rapidly running out of beer. Because <laughs> there was a big group of, of bicyclists and... Very hot, thirsty cyclists. Very hot, very thirsty. And so he watered down his beer with lemonade... And all of a sudden they liked it. And so they called it Rattlers after the bike chains. Well, it's an incredibly refreshing drink. Blazing hot. You get a lemonade Rattler. Which would you like better? The lemonade Rattler or the grapefruit Rattler? The lemonade. I'm a traditionalist. Yeah. So lemonade and beer. There's also grapefruit and beer. And it's very popular in Vienna. So much so that you can easily find it on draft. Or they'll make one for you, but it's very popular, very refreshing on a very hot day. Right, you get the crisp, carbonated maltiness of the lager, the bite of the lemonade together. Oh, it's lovely. So what was your favorite food then? Now, you've heard me say before, I'm not really a big fan of, of croissants. I get tired of them. But they had this particular pastry. It was swirled like a Danish. It had raisins, and it was buttery and crispy and flaky. Oh, it was just beautiful. Right, so you can get these Danish-type pastries, you can get croissants. The Viennese are world-famous. I mean, they invented the croissants, so they're world-famous for their pastry. Whether And you don't have to have it for breakfast. You could have it just as a snack. Right, and they had some fruit-filled ones that were just <laughs> to die for. I, I, as much as I like the pastries, I have to say the schnitzel we had at uh, one of these outdoor cafe restaurants. So in that marketplace that I was telling you about, we did splurge on a dinner there. And we were at this outdoor cafe, and I had a nice big half liter. Uh, you got a Rattler, I got a lager. And I had this schnitzel, which was covered in this, mus in this mushroom sauce. And it was Wiener so schnitzel. delicious. Yeah, Wiener schnitzel. That Wiener schnitzel, that is Vienna. So it's Vienna schnitzel. And it was phenomenal it was delicious so what was your favorite thing then you know that sweet old veteran in that shop where you bought your medal i loved him i loved his shop i loved the experience of shopping with him and trying to communicate with him 
that was probably hands down my favorite thing. I really hope it's still there. It might have been one of those places we dreamed up that <laughs> it, it was this tiny hole in the wall shop near St. Stephen's Cathedral. It might not actually be real. <laughs> Even if you can't find that particular gentleman though, shopping in those antique shops and those junk shops and those secondhand shops, that is such a wonderful experience. Yeah, avoid the ones that are made in China knickknacks. Just get the stuff that is in the junk shops. It's much more significant, actually much more of a conversation piece too. But my favorite thing is the Habsburg Palace, the Habsburg Palace. It's it's just so full of history. The crown jewels are to die for. The 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 the, the opulence of that building and the history of it. It's just a a place like no other and a very worthwhile reason by itself to go to Vienna. Right. Definitely makes Vienna a can't miss place. And we've said this about so many places. But it's true. So the drink today is going to be quite simple. I'm going to teach you how to make a Rattler. <laughs> how do you make a Rattler? Quite simple. You take a beer, usually a light one. A lager is great. I actually recommend a wheat beer, like uh, Boulevard Wheat or your favorite local craft brewery. Take a wheat beer, fill half your glass. You might want a pretty big glass. You need to make sure you get the portions right. Fill up half your glass with the beer. And then just fill the rest of the glass up with lemonade. And there you go. There's your Rattler. Lager is great. I per personally prefer it done with a wheat beer. But you can make your own Rattler. People sell Rattlers out there in the store. You can get canned Rattlers. You can get them pre-made. I particularly don't recommend doing this. The, the lemonade they use when they, when they can it and whatnot can be of lower quality. You want that nice, crisp, lemony taste. So get some nice lemonade. The good lemonade made with sugar and that has lemon pulp in it. The good lemonade. Yeah, get some good lemonade. Get a good lager or a good wheat beer, half and half, and enjoy it on a nice hot summer's day. So this has been Passports and Birth Control. Don't forget your passport. Don't forget your birth control. Like Passports and Birth Control? Give us a review and follow us on Instagram. Tell us in the comments where you'd like us to go next and support us on Patreon. Your support will send us more places and help us create more episodes.